Hello and welcome, and thank you for being here today. I want to extend a special welcome to our C-SPAN audience and a thank you to C-SPAN for covering our event today. That's always a welcome addition. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. Our program today on the future of the right to keep and bear arms is co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the Cato Institute after having been conceived in the first instance by the Federalist Society's Civil Rights Practice Group. I want to thank our four panelists in advance for their remarks and their time today. We're expecting to hear some pretty sharply contrasting views from the four of you. I also want to thank our co-sponsor, Cato, and Dr. Roger Pallon of Cato. Roger and Cato have made this collaboration very easy, and I thank them for their help. In addition to help organizing the program, Dr. Pallon is going to be our moderator today. He's the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, and he's a frequent speaker at Federalist Society lawyers and student chapter events around the country discussing all manner of constitutional issues, including, of course, the Second Amendment. Again, Roger, thank you for your role in making this program possible today. Well, thank you uh, very much, uh, Dean, for um, introducing me. Um, I want to also join Dean in welcoming all of you uh, to the uh, event uh, this afternoon and to the Cato Institute, and to thank Dean and the Federalist Society for co-sponsoring uh, this forum. Uh, let me welcome uh, uh, those of you who are watching the forum through Cato's simulcast, uh, or will later be watching it through the good offices of C-SPAN. Uh, when Dean called me a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, actually, about uh, doing this forum, on the future of the right to keep and bear arms, uh, we had no way of knowing, of course, that the issue would soon become salient once again, as it has in the aftermath of the tragic shootings in Arizona less than two weeks ago. Uh, gun control is a perennial issue in American politics, of course, but at times like this, the uh, debate becomes especially intense. Our concern today, however, uh, will be less on the politics of the issue, much less on the prospects of enacting new federal legislation, which seems unlikely as the new 112th Congress focuses, as it's already doing, on such basic questions as whether they have the constitutional authority to do so much that Congress is doing today. Rather, we're going to focus on the legal issues uh, and events that underpin the current debate. I say current debate because, of course, much has changed in the gun control debate over the past couple of years. In 2008, in District of Columbia v. Heller, uh, the Supreme Court found for the first time in our history that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to, to have a gun in the home for self-defense and not simply as a member of a militia. Uh, let me pay uh, tribute to Cato's own Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. Uh, who was instrumental in developing the strategy for that litigation and supporting the case all the way through to the Supreme Court. Then just last year in McDonald v. City of Chicago, the court found that the right was good against state and local restrictions as well. But in both cases, the court left open just what kinds of limits on the right to keep and bear arms might be permitted, and that's the subject of litigation that's going on across the country today. And the main question that's before us uh, today as well. 
But it does bring us back to politics, if mainly at the state and local level, because the right at issue, like all rights, is not absolute, whatever that might mean, but rather is subject to reasonable regulation designed to protect members of the public from exceptional risk on one hand and the right of individuals to keep and bear arms, including for self-defense, on the other hand. That's a mixed question, one might say, of law and fact. So to discuss that question, we brought together an exceptional panel of experts who I'll introduce just before each of them speaks. As the Federalist Society and the Cato Institute usually do, we have both sides represented today, at least insofar as one can speak of this issue in that way. Each speaker will address the issue for six to ten minutes. We'll then ask them to respond to each other's arguments, after which we'll open the discussion up to questions from the audience and then retire upstairs in Cato's Winter Garden for lunch. Let's begin then with Alan Guru, who is a constitutional attorney at the law firm of Guru and Poseski. He began his career as a law clerk to Honorable Terrence Boyle, United States District Judge for the Eastern District of North Carolina. After that, as a Deputy Attorney General for the State of California, uh, he defended the state and its employees from all manner of lawsuits in state and federal courts at trial and on appeal. Thereafter, he entered the private practice of law at the Washington, D.C. offices of Sidley and Austin. In February of 2000, he left the firm to serve for a year as counsel to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, Subcommittee on Criminal Justice Oversight. Allen is admitted to the bars of the District of Columbia, Virginia, and California, and is admitted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court and numerous other federal courts. In 2009, he was named one of Washington's top 40 lawyers under 40 and a champion of justice by Legal Times. He's a graduate of Georgetown University Law Center and Cornell University, where he earned his B.A. in government with distinction in all subjects. Please welcome Alan Gura. Thank you, Roger, and I'd like to thank the Federal Society and Cato and all of you for uh, coming to hear us today speak about uh, these very important issues. It's been less than six months since the Supreme Court issued its decision in McDonald versus City of Chicago and effectively gave us a green light to go ahead and see uh, to what extent the Second Amendment applies uh, to state and local uh, government regulations that touch upon the issue of, of uh, the possession and, and carrying and use of firearms. Uh, although it's been really such a short time since we've had this uh, ticket to litigate, as it were, many people are already trying to write the Second Amendment's obituary, uh, decrying the fact that because no uh, severe restrictions have yet been overturned and because Heller and McDonald itself did not actually involve cases, uh, involve um, uh, anything beyond the possession of a handgun in the House, and that means that the Second Amendment must be limited to its facts and that we must all expect to have a rather limited form of this right going into the future. I think that this is not really the, uh, the appropriate approach to take. Uh, imagine if in January of 1955, uh, Brown versus Board of Education was declared to be a failure because there was still an awful lot of, uh, of repression going around. Obviously, um, the federal courts move much slower than uh, some of the rest of the world does today in the age of uh, the internet and instant analysis. And we simply are at a point in time now where we have not yet had very many decisions, very many meaningful decisions, uh, certainly not at the, uh, at the Court of Appeals level in the federal system coming out of 
uh, carefully crafted strategic civil litigation. We have had a great deal of decisions uh, in the lower courts coming out of the sort of cases that one would expect in the immediate uh, aftermath of a decision like Heller or McDonald, namely uh, criminal cases, which are always on a faster track, that involve somewhat far-fetched claims by people who are desperate uh, uh, to, to raise constitutional defenses um, and in whose counsel, in fact, are required to zealously advocate on their behalf and, and try to seek out any sort of grounds that they might have to avoid uh, criminal liability. Uh, the Brady Center um, used to have this page on their website where they, they had a, a long list of cases that explained why uh, uh, the, uh, the Second Amendment secured only a collective right. Well, most of those cases were, of course, uh, criminal cases uh, of that ilk, and it took some time for uh, uh, well-crafted civil litigation to address that topic. So uh, to those people who would look at the uh, wide array of, um, of, of quickie criminal litigation uh, in the lower court system and say, aha, this means the Second Amendment is of little application to law-abiding people in a meaningful way, I would say stay tuned. We have many, many cases that are currently winding their way up to the appellate courts, and we will then see exactly how far and wide the Second Amendment actually does apply. Uh, when we get to the, some of those answers, uh, I will caution uh, advocates of gun rights that we're not going to win every case. It is not realistic to expect that the court will get every single Second Amendment case uh, correctly. Uh, we don't have that situation prevailing currently in any other area of constitutional law, there's nobody out there who believes that every single First Amendment case decided by the Supreme Court was correctly decided, or every single Fourth Amendment case was correctly decided by the Supreme Court. So the Second Amendment may not uh, suddenly uh, become a, a font of perfection. Nonetheless, uh, I believe that Heller and McDonald and some of the developments in lower courts indicate that we are going to see a robust and vigorous right that has a lot of actual uh, application to people. Um, the first thing to consider in looking at the framework of, of Second Amendment analysis is that not every case uh, should be or will be decided as a matter of uh, means-ends uh, scrutiny, a sort of a standard of review. The strategy of, of the other side is to uh, look at every single Second Amendment case as one that necessarily uh, calls upon the courts to engage in a balancing of interests uh, and then to apply uh, what they call reasonable regulation, which is another code essentially for rational basis review to that. And then, of course, uh, because the courts will always defer to the uh, intonations of the legislature about how, how badly we need these regulations, that all those regulations will be upheld. Uh, that is not uh, really the framework that the Supreme Court has left us in Heller and McDonald. Heller did not announce literally a, uh, a standard of review because it was not required by the case. It's a wonderful object lesson in the fact that you don't always need a standard of review. What did Heller involve? Heller involved a handgun ban, which is a question about what classes of arms are protected or are not protected by the Second Amendment, and they devised the test to address that. And Heller also, of course, dealt with the so-called functional firearms ban, uh, the, the, the law that forbade people in Washington, D.C. from using uh, functional firearms in self-defense. Well, that law clearly contradicted uh, a core aspect of the Second Amendment, and so there was no need uh, to review uh, uh, any sort of balancing test. It simply uh, was in contradiction to a core aspect of the right. So those are two approaches that we're going to see in future cases, cases that uh, uh, challenge regulations that ban certain weapons or that mandate that, that, that arms have certain features in them are going to be adjudicated not upon a balancing uh, standard of review test but upon Heller's common use test for what's a protected arm. 
Some cases will fall by the wayside if they simply ban an exercise of the right to arms or some aspect of it. For example, um, uh, I'm currently litigating a case in which the, uh, the city of Chicago has banned uh, people from, from using uh, guns at a, at a firing range. They've banned gun training. They've banned uh, going to the range and, and practicing. Well, we uh, believe that a core aspect of the Second Amendment, if you have the right to a gun, one of the obvious things that you would do with that gun is take it to the range and practice. Uh, and so that doesn't really require uh, a standard of review necessarily to resolve. That case is on appeal. We look forward to that. Uh, some jurisdictions ban entirely uh, the carrying of arms in public. Now, that activity can be regulated, but it cannot be banned entirely. Uh, again, that's, that's a, uh, uh, a matter that doesn't, isn't going to require a balancing test. And to the extent that some of these jurisdictions impose uh, licensing requirements that are applied in arbitrary and capricious fashion, again, that's not a balancing interest. That simply calls into play the Supreme Court's uh, longstanding teachings about uh, prior restraint doctrines. And since we've had a number of federal courts already adopt essentially First Amendment frameworks for the Second Amendment, we've seen the Third Circuit and the Fourth Circuit do that explicitly, it should not be too difficult for us to simply import that prior restraint uh, doctrine uh, into the world of the, uh, of the Second Amendment. So again, standards of review are not going to solve everything to the extent that some cases will have to uh, be uh, adjudicated on the basis of a, of a means and standard review. Uh, the standard of review is not rational basis. Heller made that clear. Uh, we've already had the Fourth Circuit find that it's either intermediate or strict scrutiny, depending upon who is asserting the right. And I expect that other courts will take McDonald's instruction seriously, that this is a fundamental right, that fundamental rights are not afforded rational basis or reasonable review. They are actually taken seriously. And the government will have to carry some burden of showing that the laws uh, serve narrowly a, a substantial or a compelling governmental interest. So the future is bright. We have not yet had too many decisions. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, the outcomes in a number of these cases, and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. I would like to uh, briefly mention, if I have time, Roger, in my initial comments, one minute. one minute, two challenges that we do face that are quite serious in this field. Uh, the first challenge, uh, we do sadly have uh, a number of, of people out there who um, have taken it upon themselves to litigate these cases on a pro se basis. Uh, we have a lot of um, uh, armchair constitutionalists, people who are bringing cases that perhaps are not uh, uh, the best conceived or well considered, and they are meeting, of course, with the sort of, sort of results that, that one would expect. Uh, this is an area of law that, upon which many people are, are deeply impassioned and um, and uh, when, when people uh, uh, read on the internet some theory of the Second Amendment and they feel excited about this and they go plunk down their 300 bucks at the federal courthouse and file a lawsuit, sometimes uh, the results are, are um, uh, not going to be great for uh, securing uh, uh, this right in a meaningful way. The second problem we have, I think, is, is something I'm sure will be touched upon. Um, uh, when I go into a, into a courthouse and I'm representing someone who's claiming, for example, the right to carry a gun, uh, oftentimes uh, the judge may not be necessarily familiar with gun owners or with firearms. The clerks in the court may not be uh, familiar with this world. And for us to try to show that this is a normal right, that normal uh, people exercise and can be done in a safe uh, and, and, and uh, responsible manner, uh, that uh, mission is not helped with, uh, it's not helped by... Um, a lot of the, uh, the more extreme rhetoric which is out there sometimes that we see some people 
uh, espouse on the internet and in other places. We live in a world where the camera will gravitate towards the most insane and extreme uh, uh, rhetoric that uh, someone might speak. And when uh, uh, some uh, fringe people uh, become the face of gun ownership and the use of firearms, uh, that is sort of um, a challenge for the rest of us to, uh, to try to overcome. So uh, that is something that, of course, weighs in our minds. Of course, in America, you have the right to be antisocial and say crazy things. No one would challenge that. Uh, but it is uh, one of the uh, headwinds that we face as we do try to establish uh, and secure a right which uh, normal people safely enjoy. Thanks. Thank you, Alan. And now for something completely different. Um, Dennis uh, Hennigan will speak next. Uh, he is vice president of the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence and founder of its Legal Action Project. He's the author of Lethal Logic, Exploding the Myths that Paralyze American Gun Policy. Uh, for over 20 years, he's been a leading advocate for stronger gun laws, appearing dozens of times on national television and radio, uh, including 60 Minutes, The Today Show, Nightline, and so forth. He's also had uh, written and spoken uh, extensively on liability and constitutional issues relating to gun laws and gun violence, including testifying before several congressional committees. Uh, he's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post. Under his direction, the Brady Center lawyers have recovered millions of dollars in damages for gun violence victims, as well as winning precedent-setting decisions on the liability of gun sellers. In 2004, he was named one of the top 10 lawyers of the year by Lawyers Weekly magazine. His work as a public interest lawyer has been profiled in The New Yorker. Uh, he has received his B.A. from Oberlin College in 1973 and his law degree in 77 from the University of Virginia School of Law. Prior to joining the Brady Center in 1989, he was a partner in the law firm of Foley and Lardner. Please welcome Dennis Hannigan. Thank you, Roger, uh, and thank you all for being here. Um, I noticed a generational difference between Alan and myself. When he came up, he brought a little laptop computer with him. I bring a notebook. What can I say? Um, certainly the tragic shooting uh, in Tucson has made this program even more timely. Um, but I think it also demands that we put our constitutional discussion in a broader context because our topic today really can't be confined to constitutional theory. The scope of the Second Amendment has profound real-world consequences. It has life and death consequences. And as I see it, much of the debate about the Second Amendment is really a debate about two visions of America. One vision is literally guns in every corner of American society. More guns in more American homes, more guns on the streets, more guns in restaurants, in coffee houses, in front of grocery stores, in educational institutions, maybe even in the Cato Institute. And I think a lot of the litigation we see out here is an effort to achieve through the courts that vision of America. There is, however, a competing vision, and that is the vision which allows responsible citizens to have guns in the home for self-defense but allows government to impose reasonable restrictions to try to prevent those guns from being accessed by dangerous individuals. 
and the real-world consequences of those competing visions were made starkly clear by the tragedy in Tucson. The state of Arizona has largely realized the vision of guns everywhere. It some years ago eliminated all law enforcement discretion over who gets a concealed carry permit. It recently became the third state in the country to require no concealed carry permit. Arizona's gun laws were so weak that if the shooter's community college officials had reported to the Tucson police his dangerous behavior, the police under Arizona law would have had no power to prevent him from carrying a concealed weapon. And the sidewalk in front of that Safeway was not a gun-free zone. Indeed, the shooter himself was a law-abiding citizen. He had passed a background check. He was a legal carrier of, concealed, of, of a concealed weapon up until the time he pulled the trigger. On the other hand, if the alternative vision of reasonable restrictions had been in place, there would have at least been a law on the books limiting the capacity of the ammunition magazine that the shooter used, and he would not have been able to fire 32 rounds in 15 seconds without having to pause to reload. Only when he had to pause to reload was he subdued. There is no question that the absence of such a law led to greater death and serious injury uh, in that shooting. Now, I believe that the Supreme Court rulings in Heller and McDonald are far more consistent with the reasonable restriction vision of America than with the guns everywhere vision. First of all, the right announced in Heller is quite narrow in scope. It is, according to Justice Scalia, the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to have arms in defense of hearth and home. It suggests that laws that make it harder for irresponsible people to get guns should not run afoul of the Second Amendment, and it recognizes no right to have a gun outside the home. And as a matter of fact, federal and state courts so far in seven states in the District of Columbia have rejected the proposition that Heller implies a right to have a gun outside the home. And I think this is an implicit recognition that clearly the government's interest in regulating guns is even greater when they are carried outside the home. There are substantial risks associated with guns in the home. When the gun owner takes those risks out into the community, government's uh, uh, interests are even stronger. In addition to narrowly defining the right, Scalia's opinion went out of its way to make clear that the right is not absolute and includes extraordinary language actually discussing gun laws not even at issue in the Heller case. Justice Scalia wrote that nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on several broad categories of gun laws, including laws placing conditions on the sale of guns, laws completely banning concealed weapons, not just licensing them, banning them, laws regulating the storage of guns in the home to prevent accidents, and several other categories were mentioned, and he said those categories were not exclusive. Now, in the wake of Tucson, we have actually seen support for one reasonable and constitutional restriction come from a very unlikely source. Bob Levy, the chair of, of the Cato Institute and kind of the godfather of the Heller case, 
uh, has said that he doesn't think a restriction on high-capacity magazines would violate the Second Amendment. So when I can agree with Bob Levy on anything having to do with guns, maybe it's a new day. <coughs> we estimate that there have been so far about 300 Second Amendment challenges filed since Heller. And so far, Heller and McDonald have proved to be much more pop guns than assault weapons as uh, weapons against gun laws. A wide variety of laws have been upheld. Bans on possession of guns by felons, bans on possession by domestic violence misdemeanors by persons under restraining orders, bans on machine guns, bans on semi-automatic assault weapons, restrictions on concealed carry, restrictions on guns on college campuses, the list goes on and on. And in fact, probably the most far-reaching decision is the decision by a federal judge in the District of Columbia to uphold the laws in this community that were enacted after Heller, uh, laws that allow law-abiding citizens to have guns in the home but are still the most restrictive laws in the country upheld in their entirety by a federal judge. So generally speaking, courts have taken those assurances in Justice Scalia's opinion about the presumptive legality of, of gun laws very, very seriously. And the vast majority of courts have been highly deferential to legislative decision-making on guns. Uh, they have either found that the Scalia-created categories um, are basically safe harbors so that if a law falls within the category or is analogous to it, it is upheld, or they have held that those that section of the Heller opinion is inconsistent with the idea of strict scrutiny and have used a much more deferential intermediate scrutiny uh, test. I think Alan's going to talk about standard of review uh, more. The one comment I would make about the standard of review issue is this. and It is that there is a tendency to kind of jump to a First Amendment analogy here. And I think it should be resisted. I think the First Amendment has some some things to teach us about the Second Amendment, uh, but I don't think we should be locked into the First Amendment categories simply because, uh, frankly, the Second Amendment is a very different kind of right. Uh, the right to have a gun in the home for self-defense increases the risk of physical injury in a way that no other provision of our Bill of Rights does. A gun in the home is increases the risk of homicide in the home by threefold, the risk of suicide in the home uh, by fivefold. In addition, it's been shown that communities that have a higher incidence of gun ownership, uh, the highest incidence of gun ownership, have far higher homicide rates than communities, than states uh, with the lowest rates of gun ownership. So there is a connection here. The more people who exercise this right, uh, the greater the hazard to the individual, the family, and the community. And that simply has to be recognized. You simply cannot say that about the First Amendment. And what I think that means is that the Second Amendment should be regarded as, to some extent, sui generis. It is like no other right. It is, in my view, the most dangerous right. And I think that it demands its own unique constitutional jurisprudence that is highly deferential to the very, very difficult judgments our elected officials have to make as they seek to formulate policies that will prevent future Tucsons and that will reduce the tragic toll of gun violence in this country that now takes 80 of our fellow citizens' lives every day. Thank you very much.
Thank you, um, uh, Dennis. Uh, and I want to thank our first two speakers for coming in exactly on time. And I say that in light of the fact that now we turn to the academics. Um, <laughs> I have 50 minutes, don't I? <laughs> Uh, we're going to hear next from uh, Professor Nelson Lund, who is the uh, Patrick Henry Professor of Constitutional Law and the Second Amendment at George Mason University Law School. He's written widely in the field of constitutional law, including articles on constitutional interpretation, federalism, separation of powers, the Second Amendment, the Commerce Clause, the Speech or Debate Clause, Equal Protection Clause, Uniformity Clause. In addition, uh, he's published articles in the fields of employment discrimination and civil rights, the legal regulation of medical ethics, the application of economic analysis to legal institutions and legal ethics. Uh, Professor Lund left the faculty of the University of Chicago to attend its law school, uh, where he served as executive director of executive editor of the University of Chicago Law Review, and charter uh, chairman, a uh, chapter chairman of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy. After law school, he held positions in the United States Department of Justice, in the Office of Solicitor General, and the Office of Legal Counsel. He also served as a law clerk to the Honorable Patrick Higginbottom of the Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit and for Sandra Day O'Connor on the United States Supreme Court. Following his clerkship with Justice O'Connor, he served in the White House as Associate Counsel to the President from 1989 to 1992. Please welcome Professor Nelson Lund. Thank you very much, Roger. <clears throat> it's an honor to be here. Uh, my talk is going to be a little academic. I'll try not to go over my time limit by too long, though. <laughs> After the Heller decision was announced, there was a lot of celebrating by gun rights advocates and by proponents of the interpretive theory of originalism, and that was understandable. Heller was the first significant victory for gun rights in the history of the Supreme Court, and the majority opinion is filled to the brim with the rhetoric of originalism and with detailed historical exegesis. I just wish it were all true. But I'm afraid this reminds me a little bit of the celebrations of the court's Commerce Clause decisions in Lopez and Morrison. Heller was an important test case for the interpretive theory of originalism. There were virtually no Supreme Court precedents, certainly none that could be despised, considered dispositive. And this was also a good test case for originalism because the Second Amendment poses some genuine puzzles. Its text, for example, uniquely combines an explanatory preface and a command. What it says is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, what does the preambular reference to the importance of a well-regulated militia have to do with the right of the people to keep and bear arms? One usually thinks of constitutional rights as obstacles to regulation, not spurs to regulation. And it's not immediately evident, at least to typical 21st century readers, how the right of the people, or this right of the people, would contribute to the establishment or preservation of a well-regulated militia. A different kind of puzzle arises from changes in the world since 1791. The militia organizations extolled by the founding generation have withered away, and advances in the technology of weaponry have produced arms that are far more dangerous than anything that was available in the founding era. And how do these developments affect the applicability of the Second Amendment to modern society? 
Heller was a good test case for originalism for yet another reason. The opinion was assigned to the court's most prominent exponent of originalist jurisprudence, Justice Scalia. Now, thanks to a large body of originalist scholarly literature written over the past 30 years, Scalia successfully made a powerful case for two important propositions. First, the right to keep and bear arms is an individual, private right, not a right of the states to organize militias. Second, the purpose of the right is to enable individuals to exercise their inherent or natural right of self-defense, including the right to defend themselves against criminal violence. But that's not enough to resolve the initial textual puzzle about the relationship between the prefatory language of the Second <laughs> Amendment and its operative clause. Scalia tries to do this, as any originalist must, but his analysis is full of fallacies and absurdities. He provides no tenable explanation of the meaning of the reference to a well-regulated militia in the constitutional text, and he provides no evidence of any kind about the proper scope of the people's right to keep and bear arms. The most difficult textual question, which Scalia never even addresses, is how codifying the right to arms could have been expected to preserve, promote, or prevent the elimination of a well-regulated militia. I believe there's a perfectly good answer to that question, but no answer of any kind will be found in Scalia's opinion. And that is a very, very serious shortcoming in a judicial opinion that purports to rely as heavily as Scalia's does on textual analysis and originalist interpretive principles. Scalia's failure to identify any textual or historical evidence about the scope of the Second Amendment right has spectacular effects when he addresses the principal question at stake in the Heller case itself, namely whether the D.C. handgun ban was unconstitutional. The court concluded, of course, that it was unconstitutional, but the only reason Scalia, off Scalia offers are that handguns are popular weapons for self-defense among Americans today and that he thinks there are good reasons why handguns are popular. That is not an historical or originalist argument. If it's any kind of argument at all, it's probably a disguised and incomplete form of the quasi-legislative living constitution interest balancing approach that Scalia disdainfully dismisses elsewhere in his opinion. It's very striking that Scalia abandons any pretense of originalism when he addresses the question actually presented in the case. What's even more striking is that he also includes a series of astounding and unnecessary comments endorsing various forms of gun control that were not at issue in the case. Scalia does not provide a shred of legitimate historical evidence to support any of these conclusions. To the extent that he gives any reasons at all, they are based on blatant mischaracterizations of the historical evidence, on plainly inapplicable decisions of state courts, and in one case on interpreting a prior Supreme Court decision to mean the opposite of what it says. In a narrow sense, the Constitution was vindicated in Heller because the court reached an easily defensible originalist result. But the court's reasoning is at critical points so defective and so transparently non-originalist in some respects that I think Heller should be seen as an embarrassment for every justice who joined the majority opinion. Now, Heller, of course, applies only to federal laws like the one in the District of Columbia. In McDonald, the court's decision, uh, the court's decision held that the same principles apply to state and local governments. 
McDonald presented the court with a more difficult question than it faced in Heller. It could follow its due process and corporation precedents, which have absolutely no basis in the text or history of the Constitution, or it could go back to first principles and examine its very dubious decisions under the Privileges or Immunities Clause. To put that in a slightly larger framework, the 14th Amendment, which, if anything, applies the Second Amendment to the states. It has to be the 14th Amendment. It includes two different clauses in applying other provisions of the Bill of Rights to the states. It's, the court has relied on the Due Process Clause, which there's no basis anywhere in the text or history of the 14th Amendment, and it has ignored the privilege, uh, Privileges or Immunities Clause in that context. At the oral argument, it was pretty clear where the justices were headed. The plaintiffs, the challengers of the Chicago law, were represented by Alan Gura. And he started out by arguing that Chicago's law violates the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And who do you think interrupted him to ridicule him for making this argument? None other than Mr. Original Meaning himself, Antonin Scalia. Here's what he said. Why are you asking us to overrule 150, 140 years of prior law when you can reach your result under substantive due process. I mean, I know unless you're bucking for some place on a law school faculty, the nastiest thing you can say to a lawyer. <laughs> As if that weren't enough, Scalia soon followed up with this mocking comment. Well, I mean, what you argue is the darling of the professoriate for sure, but it's also contrary to 140 years of our jurisprudence. Why do you want to undertake that burden instead of just arguing substantive due process? Which, as much as I think it's wrong, even I have acquiesced in it. So Justice Scalia's position seems to be something like this. Ignoring the original meaning of the Constitution is an outrage, except when I've acquiesced in it. And when I've acquiesced in it, it's time for everybody to stop wasting our time talking about <laughs> originalism. Great. In the end, four justices applied the court's due process precedents and in a perfectly straightforward and respectable way. Oddly, however, Alito's plurality opinion for those four justices also makes a series of arguments designed to show that the court's decision is consistent with the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Those arguments are all bogus and in some cases just shockingly bogus. Justice Thomas wrote a concurring opinion that tried to take originalism seriously and apply the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and he got exactly zero support from anybody else. But perhaps the worst aspect of the Alito opinion is its entirely gratuitous reaffirmation of Heller's irresponsible endorsement of various forms of gun control that were not at issue in either case. So what can we expect in the future? My own guess is that we'll see a great many poorly reasoned lower court decisions largely upholding various kinds of gun control regulations. And we'll see an occasional intelligent effort to apply a sound legal analysis within the limits imposed by Heller and McDonald. There will probably be some victories for Second Amendment rights in the lower courts, and maybe we'll see some eventually in the Supreme Court as well. What I do not expect, however, are any victories for the originalist approach to constitutional interpretation, at least in the Supreme Court. If the jurisprudence of the Second Amendment goes in the direction that I hope it will go, it will have to be because at least five justices recognize the social value 
of the free citizen's right to keep and bear arms. If they get to liking this right as much as they like the right of free speech, the Second Amendment will be in pretty good shape. But I don't think there are an awful lot of encouraging signs in the Heller and McDonald opinions. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Alan, I think. Um, <laughs> Nelson, I mean. Uh, we're going to now hear from uh, Alan Morrison to wrap things up here in our first round. Uh, Alan is the Lerner Family Associate Dean for Public Interest in Public Service Law and professor, professorial lecturer in law at the George Washington University Law School. He received his undergraduate degree from Yale College and his law degree from Harvard Law School. In between his studies, he served as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy. His early legal career includes working as an attorney at Cleary Gottlieb and as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. In 2004, uh, Allen retired from public citizen to work at Stanford Law School as a senior lecturer on administrative and public interest law. He's taught at several law schools, including Harvard, American University, New York University, uh, Tulane University and China's Fudan University. Uh, Alan teamed up with Ralph Nader in 1972 to found and direct the Public Citizen Litigation Group, the litigation arm of the consumer advocacy group Public Citizen. Over the span of his career, he has argued 20 cases before the United States Supreme Court. Please welcome Alan Morrison. Thank you. Uh, couple of preliminary matters. First, uh, I first came to a program at the Cato Institute uh, in somewhat less august surroundings than this. As I recall, the Institute was in the basement of a small townhouse on 2nd Street Southeast. And I was there because I, like the people at the Cato Institute, believed that many of the restrictions then and still today as to the unauthorized practice of law harmed consumers by creating artificial barriers to the delivery of low-cost services to people who could not afford to have lawyers. Uh, I was proud to be there then, and I'm pleased and proud to be here today. Uh, the second point that, that uh, needs to be made is you wondered why am I here, uh, besides the fact that I was invited. Uh, I'm here because for a brief period of time after I left Stanford, I worked at the Attorney General's Office for the District of Columbia, and I was scheduled to argue the Heller case. I, in fact, had been significantly involved in writing the brief in the Heller case, and my boss and the mayor and the mayor's council had a difference of opinion as to the respective roles of the mayor's council and the attorney general, and she sensibly resigned, and I got fired as a result of it uh, the day the brief was about to be filed. So I didn't get to argue the case, and all of my friends, I know who my friends are, say to me, oh, Alan, if you had only argued that case, you would have won. And I say to them, dream on. There was no chance that that case was going to be won. Justice Scalia had made up his mind, and he had five votes no matter who said what. All right. Now, the one thing I did when I was drafting the brief, and this brief was largely the work of others who came before me on the case and who worked with me in drafting the brief, the one word I would not allow, and I won this battle, to appear any place in our brief was the word clear as in the Second Amendment history clearly says this, or the text clearly says that, I said it would be a uh, derision of all of the trees that had fallen 
as a result of Second Amendment scholarship for anybody to think that the answer was clear. And yet, Justice Scalia thought the answer was clear, but then again, so did Justice Stevens, and they both said it was clear. And if there's one thing that's clear about it is it's not clear. All right. Uh, now, there is one argument that we made uh, that on the basic Second Amendment, does it apply to the militia as opposed to does it apply to individual right to bear arms? Uh, and I don't intend to rehearse or relitigate re that issue uh, here today. Uh, but there was an argument we made, which I don't think we made as fully as I would have wanted to have made it. And that is, people would say, well, it's in the Bill of Rights. Therefore, it must be like all the rest of the parts of the Bill of Rights. And there is an answer to that. Why was it in the Bill of Rights? And the answer is because, and I think this is pretty clear, that Madison, who was in charge of the Bill of Rights, said one thing. We are not going to touch the body of the Constitution. We are not going to do it because that would reopen all of the compromises that have come before it. And so while I am agreed to allow additions to the Constitution, nobody's going to go back and touch it. And that's the reason that the Second Amendment was not put back into Article I, Sections 15 and 16, which do talk about militias. And so there is a good, solid explanation for that as to why it's not treated like the Bill of Rights. Now, am I talking about that just to make an argument here today that the decision was wrong? No, because I think that fact has continuing validity as we go forward. And as the argument is made, well, this is like the First Amendment. And it's not like the First Amendment because for the historic reason I give you. And second, uh, to uh, repeat a phrase that my mother told me uh, many times when I was a, a boy growing up, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names will never hurt you. A la First Amendment is not equal to the Second Amendment. Guns can hurt people. First Amendment words may annoy you, uh, antagonize you, but they cannot hurt you in the same way that guns uh, can hurt you. All right. I disagreed with Justice Scalia's determination, but it is certainly not an unreasonable determination that the Second Amendment applies to greater, to, to something else other than the militia. My biggest objection to his opinion is what followed afterwards in the 10 pages or so he dealt with the issue before the court. Now, would it such that, as Alan Guru said earlier today, that the only decision that was made there was that you had a right to an operative gun in your home. One of the problems with the District of Columbia's law, and this really didn't get played out until we got to the Supreme Court, was that not simply did it forbid you from having a handgun in your home, which would have been one thing, but they had this strange interlock, no-load no law, and nobody and I mean nobody, in the district government, in the police, had ever focused on what it was supposed to mean and how it was supposed to operate in the real world. Uh, because the problem was that that part of the law applied not just to handguns, but it also applied to all forms of uh, firearms, meaning that you couldn't have a loaded rifle in your home. Well, we conceded that rifles were protected, that that was an alternative to handguns, and therefore, it was an appropriate means of defense as opposed to handguns, which were not, in our view, an appropriate means of self-defense and had all of the negative things that rifles and shotguns did not have. Uh, by the way, this view about rifles and shotguns being adequate was not my idea or that of anybody in the district. We found this idea in a, in a uh, debate 
in a magazine that I normally do not read called Guns and Ammo, in which the fight was about whether a shotgun or a rifle was the better means of defending yourself at home. We thought, naively it appears, that just because the gun people thought that that was the, the appropriate debate, that, that by definition having a handgun was, was okay and was certainly within the realm of legislative reasonableness. Uh, we were obviously wrong about that. But if the, the, so if narrowly defined, that is, if a court wanted to reach the narrowest possible grounds for deciding this case, it could have said the right to an operative weapon in the home, including a handgun, is, all, is, is what's protected by the First Amendment. They could have done that. There would have been no dicta. There would have been none of these examples in there. Now, why didn't the court do that? Why didn't the court follow what it always says is we decide the case before us. Uh, we can ask all the lawyers all the nasty hypotheticals we want in oral argument, but we don't have to put them in our opinions. We write, decide this case and this case only, and we can think about the next case, but we don't have to decide it. Well, what did Justice Scalia do? He put in a series of examples of laws that are presumptively constitutional. Why do you suppose he did that? Does he violate his premises that we do not normally put lots of dicta in there? I don't think so. I think he did it for one very big reason. That's how he got five votes, because some of the members of the court would have been decidedly uneasy with not saying anything else about it. As it was, the victors in the case, and I do congratulate the victors in, in, in the case, were able to say, well, you see, we haven't wrecked complete havoc on the universe yet. Uh, we have, all these laws are protected. All right, so this dicta is terribly serious as a problem for the reason I'm about to come to, which is, how does he decide that these laws are okay? He doesn't tell us, he just simply announces his conclusion, and so, Usually what we do is we can tell whether as a law is okay because we have a standard of review. How strictly are we going to construe the constitutional right in this particular case? Indeed, this standard of review, which sounds like some lawyer's language, is one of the rules that the federal courts of appeal require in every brief. You have to state the standard of review applicable to the decision below that you are seeking review of before the court can decide the merits of the case. What does Justice Scalia say about the standard review? He says it doesn't matter. Well, it may not matter with respect to the right actually at issue in this case, but it surely matters if you're going to define the rest of the rights. So for example, suppose we have strict scrutiny applied. Many people probably here in this room and some on the podium would support strict scrutiny. Well. If we have strict scrutiny, just take the laws about felons, felons unable to have firearms. Martha Stewart is a convicted felon. So is Scooter Libby. So is, of course, Al Capone. All of them were convicted of white-collar crimes, nothing involving violence. If strict scrutiny is applied, why is that law not overbroad? I don't have an answer, but I didn't include the dictate the phone. Similarly, if somebody is convicted of domestic violence by threatening another person with a firearm and they plead to a misdemeanor, why should the label misdemeanor as opposed to the label felon automatically take it from one side of the equation to the other? And I suggest to you that unless we get the standard of review right, or even get a standard review, 
we cannot responsibly answer uh, the questions that are going to come up in the laws that are being litigated now. Uh, just two final words, and then I will sit down. One is, uh, I sympathize uh, with the, the problem that Alan is, is facing, trying to control all these out-of-control people who are armchair constitutionalists. Uh, uh, it was a, a wonderful thing, or perhaps not such a wonderful thing, when Brown versus Board of Education was decided, that there was nobody other than NAACP who was out there uh, trying to look for cases to litigate. So you didn't have to worry about all these spurious legal theories because there were no lawyers who were willing to take on these cases, let alone any funding for them at all. And, and the pro se's uh, were, were, of course, uh, not, not around at that time in any way that they are now. Uh, and, and, and the second is, uh, he has lost control over the litigation for another reason, and that is, as he pointed out, that defense counsel in criminal cases have a legal obligation to raise the Second Amendment every time it possibly comes up. And of course, for proponents of the Second Amendment, uh, that is exactly the wrong context in which they want these Second Amendment issues litigated. So I, I, as a, a legal strategist, and he and I are in the same category for, for that, I applaud his decision to go after the uh, restriction on, on uh, testing of firearms, and, and, the, and I don't know anything about, else about the law, because that's obviously the case. If you have a firearm, you ought to be able to learn to use it safely. Uh, but he's going to lose the strategic battles along the way. But it will be very interesting to see what happens. And once and if we get the standard review straightened out, then we'll have a better idea of which laws will stand and which laws will fall. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Okay, now we're going to have our second round, brief second round. Uh, I would ask each of our uh, uh, panelists to keep his remarks very brief indeed. Uh, let's start in the order, uh, let's go in the order in which uh, we spoke. Alan, shall, would you like, yeah, from the, uh, right from your sure. seat there. Sure, well, very briefly, to respond to some of the things that Dennis had said, um, we do see a lot of this uh, type of argument from, from Dennis's group and others that the uh, that the decision in Heller must be limited to its facts. Well, that's not exactly how our system works. Um, uh, the court's decision in Marbury versus Madison was not limited to the facts of the president's delivery of judicial commissions. It had a broader principle behind it. And likewise, uh, in the Heller case in McDonald, there was an announcement by the court that the Second Amendment secures a fundamental right, and moreover, that this right is to be explored and defined with reference to the way in which it was understood by the people who framed it. Uh, there is absolutely no argument that I have seen or heard from anyone that Americans in 1791 or 1868 understood the Second Amendment to extend no further than the home. Uh, I haven't even seen the alleged evidence for this proposition. It's true that Heller and McDonald didn't have those applications, but it's fairly clear that um, uh, that Heller and McDonald uh, uh, decided that the right to keep and bear arms uh, was actually a right to, to keep and carry arms, as the Heller case repeatedly says. In fact, this was not dicta. This is something that was uh, foisted upon the Supreme Court in Heller because uh, the District of Columbia uh, insisted that uh, bear arms had this exclusive military idiomatic meaning, meaning to soldier, to, to go ahead and participate in some kind of state-sanctioned military activity. Well, the Supreme Court rejected that, and it gave a very different definition for that same word. They said, no, bear simply meant uh, to carry. And certain uh, other courts, lower courts, have 
um, have found that language useful in, in some cases. And so I don't see that the right is going to be cabined uh, uh, to the home any more than the fact that Heller and McDonald involved handguns means that shotguns are not protected. I think shotguns are obviously going to uh, wind up being a, a protected class of arms. So uh, again, we don't read these decisions as being limited to their facts. We read them uh, as standing for broader constitutional principles. And um, we're going to see a, a meaningful right evolve from that. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Dennis? Well, I, I guess my point uh, on the question of guns outside the home is that there really is nothing in Heller to suggest that the right extends beyond the home, and the formulation of the right in Heller uh, clearly is confined to the home. It is the right to keep and carry guns within the home. And for those who may argue that um, to say bear means carry, therefore decides the issue, of whether there is a right outside the home, I would just remind them that when the uh, Heller court granted relief to Mr. Heller towards the end of Scalia's opinion, it said the District of Columbia must allow Mr. Heller to register his gun and then issue him a license to carry it within his home. So the Heller decision itself contemplates uh, the possibility that the right to keep and bear arms is a right to have and carry a gun uh, within the home. I think it is, in terms of original intent, um, I think it is very telling that uh, actually the only category of presumptively legal laws which the court in Heller actually commented was established by the historical record was the ban on concealed carry. That was the one that the court said uh, went all the way back uh, to, the, to the founders. And to me, that uh, strongly suggests that there uh, is a basis to confine the Heller right uh, uh, to the home. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Um, Nelson? Okay, I just want to make a couple of short points. One, in, in response to Dennis's remark uh, a moment ago about Scalia having said that bans on concealed carry go all the way back to the founding. It's true that he tried to suggest that. He didn't quite say it. He included a long string cite in his uh, opinion uh, to add to that impression that he was saying that if you go actually read the cases, they don't establish any such thing. Um, the other short point uh, I want to make is in response to Alan Morrison's comments about the standard of review. Uh, for those of you who aren't lawyers and aren't familiar with this, the standard of review is basically a formula that courts use to express how much deference is being given to legislatures uh, when reviewing the constitutionality uh, of, of, of various challenge laws. And they've developed a whole kind of hierarchy of standards of review. The lowest one, the highest one is strict scrutiny. And there's the lowest one, the one that gives the most deference to legislatures, called rational basis. And then they have rational basis with bite and rational basis with two and a half bites. That's, that's a joke. And intermediate scrutiny and all of this stuff. Um, members of the Supreme Court on both sides of the ideological divide have said for a long time that these formulas don't really tell you how cases are decided, they're used to describe, they're used to justify decisions made 
uh, on, on other grounds. There's a lot of evidence to support that. Um, my favorite is the Grutter decision uh, involving affirmative action at the University of Michigan Law School where they purported to apply strict scrutiny, the highest level of scrutiny, the one that gives least deference to the legislature. And when you read the analysis, it is absolutely indistinguishable from rational basis review, which is the one that gives the least deference to legislature. So the fact that the Supreme Court didn't articulate a standard of review or choose among this plethora of possibilities in their jurisprudence uh, doesn't seem to me particularly significant, because if they had, it probably wouldn't have told us all that much anyway. Thank you. Nelson, uh, Alan? Two quick points. One, uh, Alan may be uh, sure that shotguns will be upheld, but he's got to explain to me why sawed-off shotguns are not upheld uh, in terms of originalism, because that's what the court in 1937 said. And Miller was perfectly legitimate for the federal government to ban. The second, the, the question on standard review sounds lawyerly, uh, and it is, but what's underlying at stake here is the question of how much deference should be given to legislatures when they are doing trade-offs, when they are trying to make predictive judgments about whether society would, as a whole would be better off with one law or another or one variation rather than another. And in general, we allow legislatures to make those kind of choices. When we think that the legislative process is likely to work reasonably well, that the affected interests are likely to be heard, and that for better or worse, the decision is one that's within the realm of reasonableness for most uh, people. Um, and it doesn't mean that the legislative choice has to be the same in Arizona or Texas as it is in the District of Columbia or New York City. Uh, it seems to me that guns and the regulation of them are quintessentially legislative matters. As Roger said at the beginning, uh, the gun debate has been part of our political debate for years. And in my view, it should have been kept there, and it should remain there within some very wide range of reasonableness for legislatures to do what they think is best, and that the court should grant deference because there's no reason to think that gun enthusiasts and others who are supporting broad gun rights are not adequately represented and do not have adequate access to the legislators who are making the decision in this case. There is no chance of a breakdown in democracy, in other words, and for that reason, no need for the court to aggressively step in and protect those who lose in the legislative arena. All right, thank you, Alan. Now we're going to open up the discussion to those of you in the audience. Uh, please raise your hand. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have, and also identify the speaker to whom you're question is directed. Let's start with this gentleman right here in front who has his hand up. I'm a uh, police lieutenant from uh, Dublin, New Jersey. So I have a very keen interest in Your this name, argument. please. Oh, Stephen Rogers. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about something. The um, Both sides of the argument, very good. However, Mr. Gurr, you talked about the fringes seem to be getting uh, uh, all the publicity, and, and there's a problem with that. But Mr. Heineken, you said something that I think resonates with the American people. And it's something important that I think has to be um, uh, expounded upon. By the way, I am a Second Amendment uh, believer, okay? I believe in the right to bear arms. But Mr. Heineken, you used a word that I think needs to be used quite often, and that's responsible gun ownership. So I have a question for you and then a question for you, Mr. Gurr. Am I to leave here today believing that your side, for more intense purposes, 
are in favor of the Second Amendment. However, as long as it is a responsible uh, Second Amendment, as long as we have responsible gun ownership. And then, Mr. Gurr, if that is the case, then why isn't our side, all right? In fact, I came in here saying, should I identify them as the right and the left? Uh, but then why can't we jump on board and say, look, it's okay. We're, we're, we're fighting for Second Amendment rights. However, they're saying the same thing we're saying, but the word responsible needs, needs to be injected in the argument. So what do I leave here today really concluding? Well, that's a, it's an excellent, excellent question, and um, it's a question that I actually do address at length uh, in my book, Lethal Logic, because I've been at this for over 20 years, and uh, a key strategy of the gun lobby uh, is to make the debate about banning guns. Uh, that is the way they make the debate most polarizing. It's the way they raise a lot of money. And part of that strategy is to argue that those of us, uh, like the Brady Organization, who uh, do not advocate a handgun ban, but do advocate reasonable controls, are, are, are really being disingenuous. You know, we re this debate, the NRA will tell you, isn't about waiting periods, and it's not about limiting ammunition magazine capacity. These people really want to ban your guns. They really want to come after your guns. Now, that's not to say that there are not uh, Americans who believe that guns should be banned or handguns should be banned. There are. The polls show that. It's a distinctly minority view, but it is not our view. And, it, and this slippery slope argument gets us into trouble because every time someone comes forward and says, well, can't we at least require background checks for all gun sales? We've got them for sales by licensed dealers. They're working. They're, they could work better, but they've, the Brady Bill has stopped about 1.9 million prohibited gun buyers, most of them felons, from buying guns over the counter. Let's take that success story and extend it to all private transactions at gun shows and even, and even elsewhere. Seems like a reasonable proposal. But the response is, oh, that's just a step down the slippery slope. Well, it was, all, it was my hope, frankly, that after Heller, and as a constitutional matter, I think Heller was wrongly decided. But nevertheless, I've said that Heller is a paradox, because even though it was wrongly decided from a legal standpoint, uh, I, I was hopeful that it would, by taking gun banning sort of off the policy table, which is, that was Scalia's term, certain uh, measures are off the table now, banning guns is off the table, we would somehow diminish the power of this slippery slope argument uh, to uh, adversely affect the nature of the debate. Most Americans and most gun owners are in favor of these reasonable controls. Recent polls show over 80% of gun owners want background checks for all gun sales. So do we. We ought to be able to come together on this kind of thing. Helen? Well, nobody, nobody goes out and, and uh, supports the idea that we should have unreasonable laws and that people should be allowed to be irresponsible. Uh, the, obviously, the debate is about what is unreasonable and what is irresponsible. And uh, our side of the debate believes that uh, you do, in fact, have a meaningful constitutional right to uh, to have and use firearms, which means that the burden is on the government to show that any restriction uh, on access to firearms is actually a restriction that satisfies some sort of a compelling governmental interest that it does not interfere with your rights as they are traditionally understood in our, in our country. 
Uh, Dennis's group believes it's okay for the city of Chicago or for the city of Washington uh, to ban all handguns. Uh, we disagree. Uh, Dennis's group might, um, I haven't seen yet, but I guess we'll find out soon, might think it's okay for the city of Chicago uh, to ban all access to gun ranges, to prohibit people from, from obtaining training uh, and, and to be able to practice uh, their guns. Uh, we disagree. Uh, Dennis's group believes that it's okay uh, for the police to ban people from purchasing uh, firearms and ammunition and from, legal, from otherwise legally carrying their arms when a state of emergency has been declared. Uh, we disagree. We believe that when the police have said, uh, you're on your own, uh, we can't protect public safety even to the degree that we normally do, even though, of course, they're, they're not required to do so. Uh, that is the time when, when people should most have access to, uh, to the means of self-defense. Uh, they think it's okay to disarm people when, when society breaks down. Uh, so, of course, we disagree on those things. But uh, speaking personally for myself, I would not take... Uh, a Second Amendment case that tries to vindicate something that I believe is 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 uh, constitutionally within the government's power or or otherwise irresponsible, and so I'm not going to uh, take cases that that uh, that uh, claim that it's perfectly fine for mentally disturbed, violent felons to have guns. Uh, uh, you're not going to see me for uh, a right to to have the vending machines at junior high schools selling ammunition. I mean, it's just not you know we don't do that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, I would, I would, I would posit that uh, our view of what is reasonable is much more resonant and consistent with the traditional American understanding of the responsible use of firearms than, than the prohibitionist, uh, minimalist view that uh, Dennis would espouse. Uh, next question all the way. Let's go. Yes. I don't know what reasonable and responsible laws are. My view is that that's why we have legislatures, and they ought to decide those rather than having the courts decide what's reasonable and, and responsible, at least in most cases. So, in other words... Substantial legislative deference. Yeah, you've left the door open for... Yes, of course. We have a right. There's no question about that. And, and if the District of Columbia passed a law, the, the plain purpose of which was to send something through the back door, which was prohibited through the front door, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. But in general, I'm perfectly willing to give the legislature, indeed I embrace giving the legislature, the opportunity to hear Dennis and Allen argue the, the, what, the particulars of a particular law and decide it the way we decide it, which is by having the legislators vote on it and having the mayor or the governor decide whether to sign it. Uh, David Ritker's up there in the back. Standing up. David Rickers, uh, Cato Institute. Uh, my question is for uh, Mr. Hennig and Mr. Gura. I'd like to focus on the Phoenix shooting. Uh, first, uh, to, to clarify a couple of points, I think Mr. Hennig, your characterization is a little off. Uh, in fact, the Phoenix shooter was not law-abiding until he pulled the trigger. He lied on the ATF paperwork uh, to, to, buy, to purchase the gun. And also, I'm not sure why you place... Uh, such a focus on having a gun-free zone sign there if he would disregard the laws against murder. But moving on to discretionary permitting, which you recommend, um, discretionary permitting in practice essentially means either that uh, all permits are denied, the situation that we've seen in the Woolard case in uh, Maryland and a couple other that Allen is, is litigating, uh, or the sheriff uses their discretion in ways that I think are objectionable. In uh, Los Angeles County or New York, these are essentially sold for campaign contributions. 
uh, or they're used in a discretionary manner, uh, such as the one that Martin Luther King Jr. applied for. After a bombing of his house in 1956, he applied for a permit, and it was denied for, I think, what are pretty uh, plain reasons, given the atmosphere in Alabama under their discretionary permitting system. So if discretionary is code language for either having no right uh, or it uh, is a right that can be refused in an arbitrary and capricious or discriminatory manner, uh, how is that constitutional or defensible? I guess my answer is supposed to be briefer than the question, but that's a little bit of a challenge. Um, the point I was trying to make about Loeffner is that the NRA's uh, uh, program is to eliminate law enforcement discretion over who gets a permit. So that if you pass a background check, and he did, when you say he lied on the form, it's not at all clear to me that he fell into one of the prohibited categories. Uh, uh, the point is, the NRA says if he, if he passes a background check and he's a legal gun owner, they don't even want to impose an additional permitting requirement. That means he was a legal carrier under Arizona law until he pulled the trigger. And that is the NRA's vision of what's supposed to happen across the country. If you can pass a background check, uh, then you can carry concealed. And it is a policy which is folly. And uh, this horrendous event shows the folly of it. Uh, the folly of it has been shown before. This just dramatizes uh, the folly of it. Uh, and certainly, uh, the question of uh, an arbitrary and capricious uh, use of government power to uh, deny a concealed weapons permit, there may be a remedy at law uh, for that. I'm not arguing that government should be free of civil remedies when it, when it acts arbitrarily and capriciously. I am arguing, however, that it is folly to take all the discretion away from law enforcement. Uh, if a law enforcement has discretion, if they, if they look into somebody's background, with that, you know, and they interview uh, people who know the applicant, and they might have interviewed the community college people and learned all these facts about this guy, they would have been in a position to make him not a legal concealed carry uh, uh, holder. And uh, that would have been a, you know, that's just a much better legal system uh, to treat this issue. Uh, Dennis, may I ask you very quickly, um, has the Brady Center taken a position on presumptions? In other words, is the presumption that you have a right and then the burden is upon the government to show why you should not, in this case, exercise it? Or is it the other way around that you don't have a right and the burden is upon the applicant to show why he should get the permit? I don't know that we've uh, taken a position on that. I mean, that is something that we would leave, I think, to, uh, to state law. Uh, but the requirement that government act um, uh, without uh, uh, being arbitrary or capricious is a fundamental principle of law that would apply to concealed carry permits. I would also add on the issue of presumptions, um, Scalia's use of the term presumptively legal when discussing broad categories of gun laws raises an interesting question about the uh, burden of proof. Normally, um, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the presumption is with the individual and against the government. Uh, but here, uh, that use of that language raises interesting questions about whether uh, the Supreme Court views it differently when it comes to the right to keep and bear arms. Alan, did you want to say something? Yeah, first of all, as far as Scalia's presumptively lawful language, uh, the reference there is to the carrying of arms in so-called sensitive places. Now, 
we don't know what sensitive places are, and I suppose we all may have views as to how the court can go about exploring that. But of course, the suggestion that you can be banned from carrying arms in sensitive places uh, is the exception that proves the rule that you must be allowed to carry them in non-sensitive places. Uh, the Supreme Court has also approved of the right to keep and bear arms traditionally applying to uh, such outside-the-home activities as hunting, uh, practicing uh, at a range. Uh, I don't know too many people who go hunting with firearms inside their homes. To the extent you go hunting inside your home, usually use uh, less lethal things um, against smaller creatures. Um, the, uh, and, of course, uh, in uh, Dennis's uh, uh, favorite case, U.S. versus Miller, the question concerned the application of the Second Amendment to a sawed-off shotgun that uh, came within federal purview because Mr. Miller was driving it uh, on the highways in Arkansas. It was not inside his home. Uh, to correct something that Dennis said earlier, the reason the Supreme Court uh, told the District of Columbia that they had to issue a li uh, Heller a license to carry his gun in the home is because that's the only kind of license for which he applied. Uh, D.C. law uh, had essentially two different licensing requirements. There was a, a license to carry publicly, and, also which, and if you carried publicly uh, without the benefit of a license, that was a felony conviction. If you carried inside your own home without the benefit of a license, that was a misdemeanor. And we challenged that law, and because we challenged the carrying in the home law, that's the way the language of that uh, uh, came out. And of course, Washington uh, immediately repealed the carrying in the home licensing uh, requirement. Now, as far as uh, the, uh, the question raised uh, uh, by the questioner, uh, the Supreme Court has a long tradition of requiring that in prior restraint cases, the licensing of the exercise of a fundamental right not be left to the unfettered discretion of the licensing official. We need clear standards, objective standards that are narrowly defined that tell licensing officials when they shall and shall not uh, issue permits. I don't have a problem with uh, subjecting the right to carry firearms to uh, a, uh, uh, an appropriate licensing standard, and most states, in fact, do have perfectly constitutional laws about that. However, when, it, when it's simply a matter of uh, whether the officials believe you have good cause to exercise your constitutional right, that's clearly unconstitutional. If you have the right to do something, uh, your right to do it cannot be denied because the government doesn't think you have a good enough reason to exercise your constitutional rights. That is a classic form of prior restraint, and uh, I can give you, and in fact, in some of my briefs I do, uh, provide chapter and verse, case upon case upon case, where the Supreme Court has thrown out uh, any kinds of uh, uh, licensing standards that rest upon these vague notions of what's in the, the public benefit or uh, when you actually need to exercise your right and all that kind of uh, uh, inappropriate language. Uh, this gentleman right here. Yeah. Just wait till the uh, microphone. Please identify yourself. Yes, uh, Richard Reisberg, a citizen from Silver Spring. Uh, uh, what uh, hasn't been discussed at all, and it's sort of uh, indicated by what's going on in Mexico now, uh, that uh, uh, maybe it's the gun industry that uh, needs uh, some regulation. And uh, the First Amendment, I mean, the Second Amendment doesn't really come in there. We just say you can't make AK-47s except uh, uh, under very limited circumstances, and you can't uh, develop, uh, 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 I, I don't even know what they're called, that shoot 30 bullets uh, without uh, less, letting your finger off the trigger. And, uh, uh, and that that's the answer to it, and it has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. You just uh, regulate the industry. 
Okay, well, since we're here to discuss the Second Amendment, does anyone have a brief uh, comment on that? Dennis? Yes, I mean, I think that's a very important topic that the questioner has has brought up. Uh, there is a, a great deal that needs to be done to regulate uh, the gun industry. Um, and, uh, you know, so many of the policy ideas that need to be discussed really do not have anything to do with the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, there's no uh, Second Amendment uh, right uh, to sell guns to straw buyers for drug cartels. Um, there's no uh, Second Amendment right to a very weak Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Uh, we need to give the enforcement agencies greater power to cut crack, crack down on corrupt dealers. We need to limit the number of handguns that can be sold at any one time to reduce gun trafficking. Uh, we need to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Uh, there are so many of these kinds of sensible policies uh, that would save countless lives, and there simply is no colorable argument that they violate the Second Amendment or set us on some kind of slippery slope towards gun confiscation. Take a question up there in the back. Uh, the gentleman with his hand up right here in the front row of the back. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is George Lawrence. I'm a semi-retired psychologist. I'm an avid hunter and self-protectionist. Uh, one quick comment and one, I think, pretty quick question. Uh, it seems to me that, that, that it's, it's absurd to talk about bearing arms within the home uh, as though you want to walk or march around carrying a gun on your head. Your, no, bear arms is carry guns around, uh, for better or for worse. I'm, I think it's pretty obvious that's what it means. The, the, the question I have is that having noticed and appalled at it, spokespeople for gun organizations asserting the necessity for the private ownership of assault rifles with high-capacity magazines, justified by Thomas Jefferson's regrettable comment about tyrant's blood, as a way to prevent an encroaching government, uh, it makes me wonder whether there's any substantial body of legal opinion that supports a constitutional right to prepare for armed insurrection. Uh, Nelson, you may be an expert on that uh, issue. Uh, <clears throat> Well, I don't know about informed legal opinion, but in Justice Scalia's opinion in Heller, uh, he, <laughs> he, he acknowledges uh, that uh, part of the purpose of the Second Amendment is to enable the citizenry to resist or, more importantly, deter attempts at tyranny, and I think he's right about that. Um, and in fact, um, the, it's important to distinguish between this caricature of the kind of argument that he was alluding to, namely that we have a Second Amendment right of insurrection or something like that, which is not true. Um, but there is a long tradition, very articulately articulated by James Madison, for example, according to which tyranny is less likely to be imposed on an armed citizenry. Well, why is that? Because it's more costly to do it. And the fact that due to technological and social changes, there's certainly no doubt that the 101st Airborne could, could defeat any group of American citizens with their hunting rifles. That's certainly true. That doesn't change the fact that in less extreme situations, government oppression, government violence can be deterred uh, by the fact that there are armed citizens because they uh, raise the prospective cost or the raise the risk of engaging in tyranny. And uh, th th there are e examples of that, for example, during the 60s and the Civil Rights Movement. 
uh, where uh, the government and quasi-government organizations like the Ku Klux Klan were deterred uh, by uh, visibly uh, uh, and organized uh, groups of blacks and civil rights workers arming themselves to make it more costly uh, to oppress them. So although this kind of thing operates at the margin nowadays, not in the kind of ultimate extreme sense that, 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 that people like to think of it, it does not mean that an armed citizenry is no deterrent at all against, uh, uh, against illegal government oppression. I comment on that. The, the gentleman right behind the gentleman who spoke. Right. Uh, I'm Brian Bishop from the uh, Ocean State Policy Research Institute in Rhode Island, although uh, anything I have to say certainly isn't uh, a, a considered a policy that, uh, that our uh, think tank has established. But I'm struck by the contrast that is attempted to be drawn between the First Amendment and the Second Amendment only because certainly the rhetorical res resort in, recent, in the uh, recent contemporary news cycle has been to suggest that indeed the First Amendment was what was at fault in the uh, shooting in Tucson. And so, so, so I think it's somewhat of a canard to suggest that there's so, so seemingly broad a difference that the First Amendment can hurt you and the Second does, at least when, when not acknowledging that one's own camp or many in it uh, are suggesting differently. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've considered that, uh, that uh, conundrum. Anybody wish to comment on that? Um, yes, I mean, I, uh, you know, it may very well be very useful to have uh, a public discussion at this juncture about the civility of our discourse, uh, et cetera. Um, but, um, you know, we think it's pretty plain. Uh, the problem is the guns. And uh, the, the ownership and sale of guns is simply very different. Uh, than us sitting around and talking about the ownership and sale of guns and gun policy. Uh, and in fact, the, the Supreme Court case law shows that, you know, to the extent that speech creates a clear and present danger of violence, uh, it is considered not protected at all. There's the fighting words doctrine. Uh, that goes a long way back. And so my argument is that from a point of view of constitutional jurisprudence, um, there is no reason to leap to the analogy of the First Amendment and to basically uh, derive all Second Amendment law from the First Amendment. And if you look at the experience of state courts who actually have been interpreting right to bear arms provisions for many, many years before Heller and McDonald, because there were right to bear arms provisions in many state constitutions that clearly guaranteed an individual right, the state courts universally have developed a test of reasonableness, which I think is more deferential than even in, than intermediate scrutiny, uh, which some people are suggesting as the test for Second Amendment rights. The state courts have recognized, look, this is a very different matter. Uh, having an instrumentality of lethal violence is a very different kettle of fish, fish than talking about instrumentalities of violence. Unfortunately, we can't uh, handle all of the questions. We're going to take two more and then call it quits. This gentleman right here has been very patient. We're going to have two quick questions and two quick answers, and then this young lady down here will ask the final question. John Lowy with the Brady Center. I'll be very quick. 
to Alan Gura and Professor Lund, do you think a ban on high-capacity ammunition magazines that would limit magazines at 10 rounds is constitutional? Um, I always hate to, to, to give quick off-the-top-of-my-head answers to those questions because I think you need to do a legal analysis, a careful legal analysis, before you decide these kind of questions are at the, at the margin. Um, uh, I think it's do I certainly think it's very dubious in part because uh, such bans on high capacity magazines are so silly uh, in terms of any kind of reasonable prospect that they could uh, contribute to public safety in any significant way. But to provide a legal analysis, I can't do that off the top of my head in 10 seconds. The legal analysis would go something like this. After Heller, if you're looking at a law that addresses uh, magazine capacity, the question then becomes um, whether or not a gun with uh, this type of magazine is an arm of the kind that people would expect to find in common use for traditional lawful purposes. That's the common use test in Heller. The question is not whether uh, the bad guys can use it. Obviously, the preferred weapon of criminals is, is the handgun, as the Supreme Court acknowledged in Heller, but it's also the preferred uh, arm for law-abiding people exercising self-defense. So the question is not whether the, the thing can be misused. The question is whether people would expect to find it uh, in common use for traditional awful purposes. Now, if you're talking about an 11-round magazine, uh, the fact of the matter is that um, millions upon millions upon millions of normal uh, handguns come from the factory and ship with 15 or 17-round magazines. And so I would imagine that that kind of law would ban arms of the kind that are in common use, and it would be problematic under Heller. Now, if, uh, what people don't uh, often think about when they talk about these kinds of laws is that there's always a cost exacted when you ban something and take it away from, from access uh, to civilians. Uh, in a real-world uh, situation where people are firing guns in self-defense, uh, they're likely to miss. And that's why the police carry guns that normally contain in the frame uh, 15 or 17 rounds. Uh, if the laws of physics were suspended for you and you wanted to carry a firearm uh, for self-defense, you would take the one that had 11 rounds over the one that had 10 rounds, because if you needed that 11th round uh, to save yourself, then, then that could be the difference between um, uh, life and death for you. Uh, so uh, to set an arbitrary limit of 10 that, that uh, uh, bans things that are in common use, I think, would, would probably not survive. Maybe, maybe bad shots get the magazine and good shots. Well, the, the problem with people like Loeffner is that he had even one shot. And, you know, the, the, this is, you know, it's not like it would have been a great thing if he'd only killed three people. It would have still have been a disaster. Uh, and, uh, you know, we need to make sure that people like Mr. Loeffner don't get access to any kind of firearm and, and not to go after, uh, you know, arbitrary uh, bans on things that normal people use for legitimate lawful purposes. If I could just add one quick, 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 real quick thing. The question was whether I thought it was constitutional. You have to make a distinction. Uh, I think Alan correctly kind of tried to construe Heller uh, in a certain way. Uh, Heller is not the Constitution. Um, so I think it's useful, at least in your own mind, to distinguish between what you think the Constitution means and what you think the Heller opinion means, because they're not necessarily identical, although they, of course, are treated as identical in the courts. Well, let me apologize for the noise. Uh, we're under construction, as you've doubtless seen, and the uh, workers are under construction, under instruction to uh, hold off their uh, jackhammers and what have you until 1.30.
which is supposed to be a, presumably a signal to me. But in, uh, in any event, we're, we're going to have one last question from this uh, very patient uh, young woman right here. Hi, I'm Katie Pavlich from townhall.com. This question is for Mr. Hennigan. And first of all, I want to start off by saying I'm from Arizona and I feel much safer there because of the gun laws than I do in Washington, D.C. as a young woman. So um, <laughs> my question comes, it seemed that the majority of your argument was based on the fact that guns can indeed be dangerous if people aren't trained and know how to use them correctly. Considering driving a car on a daily basis is much more dangerous and statistically speaking, your chances of dying every day are much higher when you drive an automobile. Um, how do you justify the fact that the nanny state of the government can take control of people's decisions and decide when they should and should not bear arms inside or outside of their home? Where does the nanny state end? And how are you going to protect people from themselves, essentially? Well, the first of all... Um the gun car analogy is one that uh, teaches, you know, some lessons and in other ways it kind of breaks down. Uh, first of all, um, if we actually used guns the way we use cars, if, if the average gun owner um, basically handled his gun uh, as often as he drives his car, uh, I fear uh, what the uh, death rate from guns would be. So you, 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 can't, you have to control for uh, the use of the product before you can actually make those analogies. However, um, bringing up cars does uh, teach us something, which is that even though cars are not weapons and they're not designed to kill, they're designed to get us from place to place, we do have sensible regulation of cars that we don't have with guns. We have licensing. We have registration. We have safety standards. We don't have any of those things at the federal level on guns. So I think we can actually learn from the car analogy. We ought to regulate guns at least as much as we regulate cars. We don't come close to doing that right now. All right. With that, uh, let's have lunch upstairs. But first, let's have a round of applause for our guests.